Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to do this a little bit different than we often do classes, which is we're going to try and um, be a little bit more structured about the idea and less fleshing it out and trying to bring it to life. Not, not at all, but I feel like if we do too much of that, we will never finish. And we're already starting late. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to be learning about the matzah in contrast to the wine at the Seder night. Um, now, the way I want to structure the classes is this. I'm first going to just describe the facts about the matzah and about the wine. Um, and then we're going to talk about an idea in Hasidus and its relationship to Pesach. Okay. Um, and then we'll go back and we will explain how this helps us see the, explain the differences between the matzah and the wine. Okay, so it's going to be a little bit more um, I don't know, straightforward than, than the classes usually are. At least I'm going to try to do so. Okay, so the first thing we're going to start with is the mitzvah to eat matzah on the night of Pesach is a biblical commandment. It's a mitzvah min ha-tayra. In contrast, the mitzvah to drink the four cups of wine is a mitzvah de rabbanan, a rabbinic commandment. It's a rabbinic obligation. Okay. Now, um, just parenthetically, um, why are women obligated to drink the four cups of wine? Because it's a time-bound mitzvah, and women are generally exempt from those things. Because they were involved in the miracle. Right, they were involved in the miracle. Right, so the rabbis instituted it. They went out of their way to make sure it was included women as well. Okay. Um, the reason why women are obligated to eat matzah is actually a little bit more complicated. That's why I'm not going into it. Um, but there's in the, uh, the Gemara is that the, the, the idea of instituting the four cups of wine was having the role of women in mind. Was instituted. Whereas matzah, there's some interesting halachic principles. Because that's the first difference. The second difference is that matzah, um, in the, the traditional approach to matzah, is that we have three matzahs at the Seder. Now, the, the technical reason for this is as follows We need two matzahs in order to fulfill the obligation of lechem mission, of having two whole loaves of bread. Right? Just like every Shabbos and every holiday. Um, we have two loaves of bread. Everyone's familiar with that idea? We have two loaves of bread commemorating the double portion of man that the Jewish people had in the desert that they would get before Shabbos and the holiday because they didn't get it on Shabbos or the holiday. So therefore, at every Shabbos and holiday meal, we break bread over two loaves. So we need two matzahs. Additionally, as we mentioned in previous class, the mitzvah of telling over the story of the Haggadah should be done over a broken bread of affliction, a bread of speaking. And so we need a matzah that we can do lechem mishnah, and matzah that can be broken. And most opinions hold that there would require you to have three matzahs because you can't use the same matzah both as a broken piece and as lechem mishnah. I, I would like to point out, just um, to be more like open-minded and accepting of others, the Vilna Gog was of the view that because the broken piece of matzah is significant in doing the mitzvah, therefore it can count as part of Lecha Mishnah. And therefore, if you follow the Vilna Gog's custom, you only have two matzahs at the Seder. 
but he was a very creative and innovative thinker. The standard Jewish practice in all communities other than those that follow that is to use three matzahs. So you go to like the Judaica store and they'll have like a matzah thing. You know, they always have three layers. Okay. Fine. And then the cups of wine, there are four cups of wine. There's some discussion in Talmud is the order the four cups corresponding to. Are they corresponding to the four expressions of redemption, the exodus, um, the, the cups of salvation, or other things? There. But the rabbis instituted four cups. So again, matzah, we have the number associated with three. Again, that's on a simple level for technical reasons, but it is, there are three matzahs. Whereas the, um, uh, what do you call it? Whereas... The wine. The wine um, is four. Okay. Additionally, um, we find that the numbers three and four, and this is good, I'm going to say this now, just make it simpler, are associated with gender because we have how many forefathers in Judaism? Three. 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 And how many four mothers? Four. four. Four, right? So we see a gendered dimension to the matzah versus wine, cups of wine distinction here, right? There's three, here's four. Okay. Um, also, the matzah, actually, no, we'll leave it at that. I think that's, what, that's enough, but we'll stick with that. Okay. Um, now, so what we're going to do is we're going to shift to talk about an idea in Hasidus and connect it to Pesach. Okay. Um, and then we're going to come back and show how, how this idea has, is now symbolized or embodied in these, in, in these two mitzvahs. Okay? So again, what are the differences? Matzah is biblical, whereas the wine is rabbinic. Right? We have three, cups, three matzahs, four cups of wine. Right? Three forefathers, four foremothers. Right? Okay. There is an idea in Kabbalah that Hashem's divine name, the Tetragrammaton, which is just fancy for saying the four-letter name, um, is not just meant to refer to God's being or person, but is actually a, a, a description of God's relationship with reality. Okay. So the four letters of his name are not referring to his being, his essence, but they're referring to the way he relates to us. Okay? And the idea is that his relationship with us has four stages represented by these four letters. There's the Yud, followed by the He, followed by a Vav, followed by, again, a He. Okay? And to, and this mode of relating is especially significant when we're talking about God relating to us in a way that he is trying to share with us, to bring to us his full divinity. In other words, I can do something that influences others, but I'm not really revealing myself, not really sharing myself. Right? I walk down the street, um, somebody needs to borrow a phone, I hand them my phone, they use the phone, they make the phone call, I take it back. Right? I definitely had an influence in their life, but nothing of myself has been shared with them. Right? In contrast, like what I'm doing here is I'm taking knowledge that I have learned and I, that I think is very important and I'm trying to communicate it to you. Right? So that, that's very different. And there's obviously degrees of this. So the idea of the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, which is known in Kabbalah as Shem Havaya, the name Havaya because we don't pronounce it, so we just kind of rearrange the letters to the root word, um, connotes how Hashem 
the way in which Hashem reveals His being to us. Okay, and that revelation is a four-step process. So what are we going to do? We're going to go over that four-step process. Um, but because Hasidus likes to use analogies, we are not going to talk about God. We're going to talk about people. And specifically, we're going to use the idea of education. An educator trying to teach something to a student. And the idea is that education has how many stages? Four. Okay. And those are going to be symbolically represented by the four letters of Hashem's name. Okay, so if we um, think about what those letters look like, the first letter, Yud, looks like a single point. The next letter, the He, has breadth and width, right? It basically kind of looks like a square. So if you think of it more geometrically, it's a dot followed by a square. And then the next letter, the Vav, is a line, a vertical line going from up to down. And then finally, we have an, a second, a final He, which you get is like a square, where it has um, length and breadth. Um, the technical terminology for this in Hasidus is called Tzimtzum, contraction, Hispashtus, expansion, Hamshacha. What is Hamshacha? Usually gets translated as drawing it down. And then finally, again, his spastus expansion. So, if you will all please look, I will show you. That's how it works. Very clear, right? I'll do it again. Okay. Um, obviously, that's, that's not how you educate somebody, right? I mean, you could do that as part of the education, but that is not the essence of it, right? These are, all, these are all representative of something a little bit deeper. Okay, so let's, let's work through. What is the first step if you want to educate somebody? The first step when you want to educate somebody is contraction. What does that mean? So if you're talking about real education, Real education presupposes that the difference between the educator and the one being educated is a difference um, of the kind of the kind of life they are living, rather than a matter of degree. So, for instance, if I read something and then I come to class and I teach it to you, but if you had read it, you would have understood it also. Even if I understand it a little bit better. The fact that I read it first and understand it better is not really what we're talking about here. The idea is that the educator, the educator is living a kind of life that is categorically superior to the one being educated, and they're trying to convey that. Right? Um, you know, and sometimes in Chassidus they would use the analogy, it's like trying to communicate what it's like to see beautiful imagery to someone who's blind. Um, that would be a, you know, just as an analogy for this idea. Right? So if you think of like an educator, so someone who is mature, God-fearing, um, and wise, trying to communicate their sense of what life really is and how it should be lived to somebody who is yet to be those things. They are immature, right? impulsive, short-sighted. Right? And that, that conveying and, and communicating in a genuine way that depth of wisdom, that fear of God, Right, that maturity, right? Not just 
simple piece of information, although it comes with information as well, right? that's the idea, of, that, that's the analogy we're talking about. Okay? So the first step is tzimtzum, the first step is contraction, because what does the educator have to do? The educator has to really, and the tzimtzum actually has kind of two aspects to it. One aspect is that the educator has to recognize that the one they're educating is really not on their level. That there's something that's incommensurate, there's something that is fundamentally different between the two. Um, Many people are bad educators for this reason. They come into a classroom and they start talking and they have not, in their own mind, and then it comes out in how they teach, they, they, they have not come to terms with the fact that the context, the perspective, the worldview, the presuppositions that the student is coming from are just not the same as the teacher's. Okay. Does that make sense? So there needs to be a real kind of like stepping out of yourself, so to speak, and recognizing the other really isn't me. They don't know what I know. They don't see what I see. Has anyone ever tried writing? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a difficulty in writing. When you're writing, you have to, you have to, you have to assume that the reader knows enough to make sense of what you're writing, but they don't know the thing that you're writing. Otherwise, why would they have to read it? And so you, you kind of have to, what would it be like to know, to not know the thing I want to communicate, but what kinds of person am I writing to that, what do I have to assume they know and don't know, right? And you have to kind of create that sense of the other's mind. But at the same time, right, there's this, you have to identify what can traverse that gap. What, what is the common point? What is something which is authentically true to you that can actually enter that other person's mind? that other person's experience, even though they don't share those basic understandings, those basic perspectives. So you have to kind of reduce everything that you want to share into a single point which is relevant to the other, which is something, not not necessarily the former, but it's something that can be communicated, something that 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 can traverse that distance between the two. So you have to recognize the distance and then find what nonetheless can be communicated. And that process that the educator takes on is called the tzimtzum, the step called tzimtzum, and that is represented by the letter yud. Prior to doing that, the educator is not really engaging with the fact that there's an other there at all. And so everything is on their own terms. Everything is very intuitive. Everything kind of makes sense to them. Now, that's step one. Is everyone clear about step one? Mm-hmm. Have you experienced trying to do something like that ever in your life? Now, some people are better at this and some people are worse at this, right? Okay. What, to be better at this means two things, that you can conceive of a mind more radically different than your own. The more you can do that, the better you are at this. Two, you can collapse more of your wisdom, more of your knowledge, more of your depth, more of your values 
into a point that can ultimately be transmitted to the other mind, communicated. Right. So, in other words, the, 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 if I were to measure people's ability to do this, you have to measure two dimensions. How distant they can conceive of the other mind being from themselves, and how little they have to compromise themselves in reducing everything to a single, single point that can be communicated. Right. So someone who's bad at this can only imagine people that are more or less like themselves, and they can't really subsume everything into one core message that they want to communicate. Okay. Now, what happens next? What is step two? Step two, so what was after the symptom, after the contraction, after the point? What was the next letter? Espastus, the hey, right? Expanding out. Okay. The, there's an idea that things, in order for things to be real and meaningful and impactful, they need to be rich. They need to have a lot of layer. They need to have a lot of texture. They need to have complexity. I'm going to use an example from literature, okay? If you were to read a paragraph, opening paragraph of a story, and that paragraph... Um, spoke about how um, there was a woman who was upset because she had been fired from her job. That was like the first sentence. There once was a woman who was upset because she had been fired from her job. Would you want to continue reading? Would you want to, like, would that sentence make you want to continue reading? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, good. Now, I'll give you a different sentence. Okay. Sally slammed down the coffee mug on the table and said, how dare they fire me like that? If that was the first sentence of a paragraph, more likely to want to continue reading? <laughs> Why? Drama. You're relating to the character more. Why? There's more than just the facts of it. There's emotion, there's more layers. There's layers, right? I already know something. For example, we know how, there's like, she's upset, but the way she expresses her anger, right? There's a context. She had a coffee cup in her hand, right? She's slamming it down, right? Well, that's already interesting. Is it it her coffee cup? Is it someone else? She had a restaurant, right? There's there's, there's so many layers to it, right? right? Things need to be fleshed out in order for them to have not just emotional appeal, but also even intellectual appeal. To appreciate their inner complexity, their ramifications, right? Now, there is a, a, a danger here, which is what happens if you overcomplicate, you add too many layers. Use the message. Right. So what is the step two of the educator? Step two of the educator is to flesh out that point. But who are they fleshing it out to? This is very key. Who are they fleshing it out to? Right? So you're gonna, you, you want to, to communicate with someone, right? You have a certain maturity and a depth and a wisdom. You want to communicate that to someone else who lacks those things. Right? So you have to really imagine what it's like to not have those things. 
and yet you have some sense of what these things are in a way that you that that they are still relevant to that person. They can be shared with that person. Okay. And now you want to take that simple kind of core theme, that that element of truth, that spark, and you will not need to flesh it out. Who do you flesh it out to? Who are you fleshing it out to? No. To yourself? To yourself. Okay. I'm going to give you an analogy. And the analogy is a meat cleaver. You all know what a meat cleaver is? It's a big knife, a piece of metal, like this. The meat cleaver is meant to cut the meat, right? Chop it into two pieces. And not just meat, but even bone, right? Um, the meat cleaver has an edge. That edge is sharp. We all understand why the edge is sharp, because the sharp edge is what cuts, right? So why does the meat cleaver have all of this big, giant piece of metal? Why not just have a thin blade? Right? You could just take the, the cutting edge of the meat cleaver and save, you know, save resources. You don't have to make, you put so much, so much steel into it. Why, why don't they do that? Why aren't meat cleavers just these like thin rapier-like swords with that are just sharp and just go down like that? Because it'll break. It'll break, right? So in other words, what is doing the cutting, right, is that sharpened edge, right? That's what's actually directly cutting. But it's cutting because of all of the momentum of the blade. So you, the, the meat, so to speak, feels that power behind the cutting edge and kind of separates. Right? If, you, if you kick the sharp edge and you would just kind of flap down like that, right, it wouldn't work. Right? So there's a sense that there's something behind it giving it more oomph, more power. Now, we've all spoken to people and we've all been in classes, regardless of whether it's Torah, or have the other subjects, where someone is talking and your sense is that they're like a flimsy blade. They're saying something and whatever they're saying is true, makes sense, but like, that's it. There's nothing, there's no, there's nothing deeper, there's nothing more behind it. And then there's people when they say, and they can be saying the same thing, and you sense for every word they're saying, there's a hundred words that they're not saying. That when they say this, there's so many more layers behind that, that they, and it has a different, it has a different, it has, it has a different sense. It works differently, right? Um, in order to convey a truth, that truth has to be vibrant and living to the person communicating it. And so you need to kind of rediscover for yourself as an educator, what does this mean and what is this about in this new headspace of the other person? So you have to explore what you know again but on the, educa the, the other person's terms. This is all happening within yourself. Okay. My father told me that he had a teacher who, um, the way he prepared to teach the Maimer, the Chassidic discourse, was that he would learn the Maimer, the Chassidic discourse, one time for each student. On his own. He would learn the Maimer and he would think, you know, you know, Ruven. How would Ruven? What would bother Ruven about this matter? What questions would he have? What, what, what? You know, what would he find difficult? What would be overwhelming? Right? Trying to like figure out the mind from Ruven's point of view. 
and then Shimon, and then Levi, and then Yehuda, and then one more time after all that to kind of weave it together. And then only when he understood it in that way for himself would he actually start preparing the actual class that he was going to give. Now, I mean, you can't do that if you have a lot of students. <laughs> um, but there's this way of, of, of you're using the, the, uh, your sense of the other person's mind, which you've conjured up in yourself in that first stage, as an anchor point, but now you're fleshing out that single point and giving it length and breadth, and it's becoming richer and more complex. Does this make sense? And so what ends up being like an idea, right? A message, a point becomes a rich tapestry in your head of, of so many different layers. And it's a web, it's interconnected. It's not a lesson plan. It's, not, it, it, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a map of a city which has neighborhoods and has, and has apartment buildings and, 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 and you know, commercial spaces. It's, 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 it's vibrant. What do you do next? Once you have that, if you just open your mouth and you start just talking to the student, then what's gonna happen? They're able to actually understand it. Yeah, they'll just get confused. <laughs> do you know why they'll get confused? It's all over the place. It's all over the place. It's all, it's a web. And, and by the way, you, you'll notice this, that, that, that um, if you do this thing called brainstorming and you try to put your brainstorming out on paper, what does it look like? Mess. Looks like a mess, right? Now, it doesn't mean that it's really a mess, but it, 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 it's a web. It's a network. Okay? Um, you'll notice this if you do writing, that sometimes people write and they're bad writers. They'll write, the, the, this comes out in their writing. So what they'll do, there's a term for this, I don't know the technical term, where you use a lot of parenthetical statements in your sentences. So you'll say something like, my brother, who is younger than me and has been doing this really interesting job, and like, you know, 27 words later, you close that parenthetical statement and you may finish the clause about what about your brother? Went to the store, or something like that. And, and, when you th and we actually do think this way. Like we can, we can nestle thoughts and thoughts and they can be integrated in very different ways. But when you actually want to speak or write things out to other people that are not privy to what's already in your mind, it's extremely confusing. Right. So there needs to be another task that the educator does, which the educator needs to figure out where is the student and where am I taking them to? They need to figure out how do you create a kind of a, 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 a movement that is structured from one place where the student is starting, where the person is starting, to the place you want them to end up. Okay? Now, people do this in different ways. So I'm just going to talk like my, myself, for example. I prepare classes, but I do not prepare everything I'm going to say. I think that should come up really obviously I don't prepare everything I want to say, right? Okay. Um, I don't do that because I discovered that when I do that, the class doesn't come out well. There are other people that, you know, they answer for everything they're going to say, though it doesn't work. So what, what I do is when I, I plan out a class, I plan actually, and, and like with the tiny, I don't actually plan out individual classes. I plan out the whole chapter. Um, 
and then what I do is I kind of think about like um, think about it like a a journey. And so like you have a train, right? The train's gonna make certain stops. So we're starting here, we're gonna end here, and we have to at this point, this point, this point, this point along the way. Now the thing is, if you just have a line in here today, it's pretty clear, but you go this way, right? But the fact is, I don't the fact is there's a lot of different things along the way. So imagine it's like a tour through a city, right? A tour starts somewhere and ends somewhere. Now which museum do you go to first? Which museum do you go to second? Which historical sites do you see first, right? So the tour guide has to figure out how, what's the best way. Because it's not like it's already arranged on a line. It's arranged on a line, you don't do any work, right? You know? It's pretty simple. This has to happen before this. There's certain things that are like that. Like You can't teach someone to read um, if they first don't recognize the letters, right? That's kind of pretty straightforward, right? You can't teach someone to run if they cannot walk, right? But most of the stuff is not like that. Most of the stuff is very layered, right? For instance, like if you go back to the idea of like writing a novel, okay? What has to be chapter one? Does the first event have to be in chapter one and the second event's in chapter two? Mm-hmm. Right, you can start thinking, wait a minute, you know, it's true that the story literally happens like this, but the journey that the reader should go on actually makes more sense if they start identifying the character at this point and then only find out that about later. That will, like, there's a lot of decision-making, you know, of, of, of what you're, what things, what stops you're going to take along the way and in what order? And what stops you're going to skip, right? Because not necessarily is every little, you know, interesting little mom and pop shop, you know, you're going to stop when you're giving a tour to it, right? It's just, you can't, right? What's too much? What's not worth the time? And then within that, then you can subdivide. Okay, so we're going to stop here, but then let's, we're just going to go to this museum. But this museum is itself a big thing. So you have to figure out within that museum, what is the route you're going to take? So you have to create this kind of route that you're going to take the person on. And w- how do you want that to be? It can be very straightforward, you know, the, you know, you know where things kind of, the, the progression is very simple. Sometimes you can, it can have things counterintuitive. Like you, you, want, you want to lead the person on towards a certain conclusion and then radically depart. And it's that contrast that gives them an insight, right? So what you're doing now is you have this very rich sense of something, which is something that is on their level, but you need to figure out how do you want to take them through that? And so you need to kind of create this line, this narrative. Where am I going? Where am I starting? Where am I ending? What am I going to hit along the way? In what order? How long am I stopping at each part? So for my classes, generally that's what I do. Um, and then I see how it plays out in real life and I'll adjust. So then before each class, I'm just, okay, we left, in my own mind, like we left off here. We're supposed to go like that. I think they'll get this much far today, right? And then within that, I have like my sub points. And sometimes, you know, the train goes slower than you expect. Sometimes the train goes faster. But that's my way of doing it, right? Everybody's different. But you do need to kind of create a sense of, of, of where you're going to go. And I, sometimes, for instance, I'll give the same class um, in different, to different people. Like Pesach. Like, hey, you remember I gave that Pesach class about uh, being like a child? So I give that class a lot. But it's not just, I, I give it very different. And the difference often has to do with who am I teaching? So where am I going to start? Where do I want to end up? Where I spend more time on, right? Because the same city might be a wonderful tourist attraction to different people, but you don't all take them all on the same tour of it. And so you need to create this kind of line of where you're, they're coming from, where you're going, and what you're taking them through. So that at the end of that, they will end up in a different place than where they started. An internally different place. And where is this happening? 
in the educator. The educator has not interacted with the person they're educating at all yet. So what's your job if you're the one being educated at this point? What? Formulate it. If you're the one being educated. Listen. To be open. Yeah, just let the educator do their job. Right? So we have the Yud, the Tzimtzum, right? Then the He, the Hispashtus, the expansion. Then the Vav, this idea from Shachab, drawing it, drawing a line. Okay. Then what? Expansion. Yes, the expansion again. But now, where is this expansion taking place? In the student, right? Because now, okay, so now the teacher's taking you on this guide or taking you on this journey, right? And you're basically passively allowing them to alter your experience of things. To show you this new world that they've created in their mind, which conveys this deep truth, right? And now what? Now what do you do with that? There's something called a kosher animal. Feel with the kosher animal? Animals chew their cud. They ruminate. They process it. If you go through the most profound transformative experience and you do not reflect upon it, ponder it, process it, ruminate over it, it will end up passing through you, leaving very little effect. The final hispastus, the final expansion, is within the experience of the one being educated. They have to flesh that out. They have to make what they have been exposed to, what they've been shown, into a, a rich experience for themselves. And at that point, the educator can, can be there for support and for guidance, but the role of the educator has gone from being the active party directing the action to passive support and encouragement. Now, the standard yeshiva education is primarily focused on the study of Gemara. At a young age, when a person is starting learning Gemara, Gemara is taught by a teacher to the students. By the end of their yeshiva education, does anyone know what Gemara study looks like for a standard yeshiva bachar? And it looks like the, they have periods of time in blocks, depending on the yeshiva, of three to four hours, sitting with a single partner on their level, studying Gemara on their own, with the idea of a class once or twice a week, which is meant to provide deep, profound, penetrating insights that they would not otherwise have seen, with the expectation that they have fully mastered the material on their own terms. Now, I might say everybody achieves doing that successfully. It's a different discussion. But what's the idea? The idea is that at some point, they have become autonomous. 
they become masters of this themselves. Now, there's still room for a teacher, right? But, but, but the, the idea is that not that there's simply just a, 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 a regurgitation of information. There's a passive acceptance of knowledge, but ultimately they become owners of it themselves. In fact, we see this reflected in, in Tillman's Psalms. In Tillman, it says, um, speaking about the first, the first Psalm, Psalm number one, Aleph, Parak Aleph. It speaks about the wicked person versus the righteous person. And it's speaking and, and speaking about the righteous person, it says, that the Torah of Hashem is his desire. And he studies Torah day he studies his Torah day and night. So the Torah of Hashem is his desire, and he studies his Torah day and night. So simply reading it, the his and his Torah is referring back to Hashem. He desires Hashem's Torah, and he studies Hashem's Torah day and night. But our sages say that the, the change in wording is reflecting a deeper idea. That initially, when he's, when he, he's merely desiring to learn the Torah, the beginning stages, who does the Torah belong to? It's Hashem's Torah. But ultimately, through absorbing it, and learning it, and studying it, and processing it, and making it his own, it becomes the learner's Torah. Okay. We actually see, if you, if you study Pirkei Avos, the words of our sages, the, the ethical teachings of our sages, that many of the sages are quoted as having these kind of uh, sayings about the proper way to live life. One of them is Shmuel HaKatan, Shmuel the Small, and his saying that he's quoted, that Shmuel HaKatan said, When your enemy falls, do not rejoice. Just, yeah, it's an important thing to live by, right? One tiny problem. That's a verse. It's not his own saying. It's a pasuk from Shlomo Melech. So why is the Mishnah quoting it in his name? Right. He didn't just live by that. Go one step deeper. It was his. He made it his own. There was a chassid named Motel Kazliner. Motel Kazliner was a chassid who was in um, Soviet Uzbekistan. He was born, I think, I guess age-wise, he'd probably have been born like after the communists started, you know, Lenin's time, Stalin's times, and he grew up and eventually got out of Russia in, in, in the 1970s. Um, he, was a, he was a very, very special person. Um, he was a bit not 100% in this world. Um, one time he went to the Rebbe, this is a parenthetical story, but it's a good story. One time he went to, to Yechidus, private audience, the Rebbe. He lived in Israel after he got out of Russia and he was in New York. And the Rebbe told him it's important when he goes back to, that he should bring a gift for his wife. So he comes out of Yechidus. He looks very distraught, very bewildered, like very like just off kilter. So he goes to him, what's, what's the matter? He says, the Rebbe says, I have to get a gift for my wife. He says, Andy, he says, I don't know what to get. <laughs> like, you know, a chassid who grew up in Soviet Russia, barely survived. He goes like, he was like, the whole culture, by, he, just didn't, he didn't even know what to do with that now. Like, he just was outside his reference frame. So he says, like, I don't know what, we got her address. He's like, oh, that's a good idea, address. <laughs> so where do I get a dress? I said, oh, I was like, the guy, you know, he's a clothing store. I'll have him come over, 770. So she, you know, okay, right, you know, you know, get a dress for your wife. So you got to call a guy over. Says, yeah, go with them. Get a dress for his wife. Says, okay, what, what size is she now? They're speaking Hebrew. Does anyone know how you say size in, in Hebrew? Mida. Mida. 
So he says, he's a midishtacha. What size is your wife? And he goes, Mida? Kulechesed. She's all kindness. <laughs> like completely like not registering what's going on. Um, but like, uh, he was like a serious, he was a very intense and very serious person. Okay? Extremely intense. The, the Rebbe actually sent him to Moshe Feinstein, um, who had gotten out of Russia in the 1920s with a few other chassidim, and Moshe Feinstein was completely shocked that there were religious Jews who were stayed for religion. And he says, how did you, how did you uh, manage to do so? Um, so he said, we forbring. You forbring, you're able to stay religious. That was his answer. The other chassidim gave other answers. But... So the story I wanted to tell about him is that he used to tell stories by forbring. I have a friend of mine who, who, who remembers him later in life. He used to come some fundraising in, in Place he remembers him from Canada. He was a young bacher. He remembers what the Kesulim was old chassid, and he would sit. He said, my, my friend told me this. Said this was the first time he realized that there was stuff that was really truly on a higher level than him. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Kesulim used to sit by Febrang and he'd tell these stories, and they were sometimes like very silly stories. So one one example of a story was that there was once was a kid. And his mother gave him some money to go buy something. He gets to the store and he puts his hand in his pocket, and there's no money. He looks and looks and looks. I can't find some money. And he sticks his hand in the pocket again and again and again and again. He goes, he goes oh, I found it! And someone says, what did you find? He says, the hole in my pocket. <laughs> and then after he said, those, those are the kinds of stories he would say. He wouldn't explain. And then after he said his story, he would say in Yiddish, das is mine, this is mine. What did he mean by that, this is mine? I can also say the story. You can... Say something, you can understand something, you can even live by something, something can belong to you. And that you have to, you have to ruminate, you have to chew it, you have to until it, 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 it's yours. And if someone else quotes it, they start quoting it in your name, even if you're not the originator of it. Anyway, so my friend, this is the first time he realized that, like, Chassidim have something special. Like, it's a I have no idea, I have no idea what he was talking about. But I knew that this was very deep and real. <laughs> it's like I've been by yeshiva. I heard I heard Rosh Hashiva speak. I'm like, Sayer! it was like all of a sudden there's something truly not operating on the same level as me. Okay, so you have to make it your own. And yeah, the, the educator can be there to support the guy, to correct, but, but they're in that supportive role. Good. What is Pesach about? Was this idea clear? What is Pesach about? Pesach is about Hashem taking us out of Egypt, right? What is Egypt? Egypt is our limitations. Fundamentally, our limitations is that we are created beings. And He wants to take us out of that and to relate to Him on the godly, divine level. I spoke in this previous class, right? So what does Hashem have to do if he wants to communicate, to share with us this divine freedom, this exalted state of being, this eternal, infinite, what it is to be holy and godly. He wants to give that to us, to communicate to us, right? Hashem is in some sense the ultimate educator, sharing the ultimate truth, the ultimate wisdom. What does he have to do? He has to do these steps, right? So first, he has to come to some sense that we are not on that level. And despite the fact that we're not level, there is some nakuda, some aspect, some spark, some, some core element of his truth that, that contains 
everything about being on this level that he can communicate. Then he has to flesh it out in a way that is going to be something that we can grasp hold of, we can participate in. And then he's going to have to figure out what are, how is he going to take us along that journey, right? And during that whole thing, and then when he goes and shares that with us, what is our job? Our job is to allow him to educate us, to allow him to, to, to reach out and schlep us out of our limitations, to elevate us beyond our limitations. Many years ago in the Mayanot men's program, the top chassidishes, I was not teaching top chassidish at the time, I was another teacher there, they had a very hard time with trusting their teacher. He was teaching them chassidish at an advanced level, and there was a, there were, there were very, what's the word? Skeptical. Skeptical is not the right word. They were combative. There was, there was almost a sense of like, yeah, but, but maybe we could say it differently. There, wasn't, there was not a, a respect for his knowledge and his expertise in the thing. And, and you can't really teach that way. It doesn't work. So we, we, we had a discussion about what to do. Um, and, and the idea was formed and was implemented. And the idea was to take them to Hulo, to the Blind Museum. The Blind Museum is what it sounds like. It's a museum. And it, it, there's no light. <laughs> and I think it's an hour tour or something like that. I've never, my wife was there. Was, it's an hour tour. And basically you get to experience what it's like not to see for... We, we did the eating. So like you're like eating in all darkness. It's very interesting. I have to like hold on to each other's shoulders. And just, right. So here's the thing. You can't see, right? Can the tour guide see? No. So why trust the tour guide? How are they any better than you? Because they know how to navigate being blind. <laughs> so the point was, he wanted to sense, you're right. I am not a Rebbe, I'm not a prophet, I'm not telling, I don't have any some special divine insight into the divine truth any more than you do. But, I have learned to navigate this, and you have not, so. And, and that experience, and was a radical change. It, it, they, they, they were not dumb students, they got the message. And they got it experientially, which is often the best way to do it. Okay. So there is this, this, this need to, 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 to trust and to be willing to follow and to be accepting and that, that you know, God, God is, is leading us out of Egypt. He's running the show, right? He's, 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 he has found a way to give mortal people an infinite divine truth that they can live by, that they can be beyond and that they are free of the constraints of what it means to be a limited human being in some very profound way. And whether that manifests on a lofty level or on a low level, whatever. And if all we do is that, will we actually ever really be free? Because what's the last step? After the educator has found what they're going to communicate, the Yud. And they have fleshed it out and made it vivid and real on your level. And they have found a way to take you on a journey through that, to, to, to familiarize yourself with it, to expose you to it, to share it with you, the Vav. Once they've done all of that, then what? That's right. You have to flesh it out for yourself. And you now have to take the active role 
and they're in the supporting role. So if all we do is let Hashem do all the work and take us out of Egypt, will we ever really be free? We have to process, we have to ruminate, we have to make our exodus our own. We do not force our way out of Egypt, but we have to take ownership of the fact that we are being taken out of Egypt. That's something that we come to appreciate and make sense of and process in our own terms. This make sense? Okay. Now, let us talk about... We're first going to talk about gender. Gender in Kabbalah is very important because the idea is that gender represents the dynamic between the relationship between God and the world, or God and the Jewish people. In, and, and the idea is that gender is specifically in the context of procreation. So in the context of procreation, who is the active participant and who is the passive participant? Males. Mm-hmm. Males active. And? All of the feminists in the room should be very upset right now. <laughs> well, I think it depends. There's two stages to this. Right? There's, there's, and I'm speaking purely in terms of the biological functioning. There's the biological functioning preconception and biological functioning post-conception, right? After conception, who's, who, who, who's, whose body is doing all of the interesting things? Mm-hmm. Right? But whose body has to do the interesting things in order to bring about conception? Mm-hmm. If someone is educating you, who is the active participant? Who is the active party in education? The one educating or the one being educated? Depends which stage. The classic method, I've mentioned this before, of a Hasidic discourse is that when the Rebbe says the discourse, what does the Chassid do? Anyone remember this? I mentioned this in a class a few, years, a few weeks ago, I think. Maybe a few months ago. No? I mean, okay, that's extreme. The Chassid listens and tries to retain everything being said. That's it. What happens after? Then what? That's right. Then the chassid tries to figure out how this makes sense and ask questions, right? So, who is active in taking us out of Mitzrayim? Hashem or us? Hashem. Both. It's both. He is the one who has to bring the truth of Yitzhak Mitzrayim to us. But then we have to make that truth our own. Right? Now, when we talk, talk about the stages where it is the male is the focus, the mashpia, the influence, the giver, right? How many of those are there? Three. Three. But when you get to the fourth, the shift is to the recipient. So, 
when we focus on how Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim, the number is going to be, when we talk about how we take ownership of our own Yitziah, of our own Exodus, he is taken out, what do I make of that? What do I do with that? How do I make that my own? The number has to be four. Okay. Now, we have two parts of the Torah. There is the written Torah and there is the oral Torah. Or more broadly, there is the biblical and there is the rabbinic. Those are not, by the way, the same. I'm going to roughly equate them, but they're not the same. Biblical is not the same thing as written and rabbinic is not the same thing as oral. But they share a similar pattern, so we're just going to equate them in this class. What is the oral slash rabbinic element of the Torah? It is the place where us Jewish people flesh out the Torah and make it rich and real in our, in our world. What is the part of the Torah which is written slash biblical? That's the Torah as God gives it to us from heaven. So which part of Yetzirah Mitzrayim will we expect to find in the written Torah? The matzah. Which part, right? Which part of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim will we expect to be an innovation of the rabbis? The wine. Because the matzah is three, the wine is four. And if we think even what is matzah versus what is wine. Wine um, is always emphasized in Kabbalah that wine has taste, wine has flavor. Right? And wine doesn't just have taste and flavor. Wine has a quality, I'm sure everyone is familiar with this, that it um, makes people um, less inhibited. I'm going to say this in a, in, a, in a counterintuitive way, which correlates to rationality. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, when people get drunk, they're less rational, right? Okay. I'll explain to you what I mean. On a human level, when a person drinks alcohol, what happens? They're less inhibited, right? And so you can really kind of see what's inside. Yeah? There's a level of manifestation, right? It said that the, the sages say there are three ways you can know a person. It's, it works well in Aramaic. Bikisai, Bikisai, Bikasai. I don't remember the order, but with his wallet, with his cup, with his anger. Meaning, you want to know who someone is? What's their relationship with money? How do they act when they're drunk? <laughs> How do they deal with anger? It's a pretty good indication of what kind of person they are. It's the same, they all have the kas, chaf, samach, but there's different mouths. Okay, so now what if you're talking about the realm of ideas, of truth, of wisdom? If you're just going to accept the truth, do you really have a full appreciation of what it is? Is it really manifest or revealed? But what if you start to approach it rationally? If this is true, well then what would it mean about this and how does it fit with that? You try to, when you try to rationalize and think things through and approach things in this kind of rigorous, methodical, logical, reasonable way, you reveal everything that was implicit in that truth, in that wisdom. And this is the power of Bina over Chachma. We've talked in previous class about that. And wine is compared to Bina for the same reason. Now again, it doesn't mean drinking wine makes you more rational, right? That's not the comparison. <laughs> this is that your temperament as a person is revealed through wine Right? The, the, what is implicit in a truth, in a wisdom, becomes 
manifest overtly as you rationally process it and think it through. So if the written Torah, the biblical Torah, is the chachma, is the wisdom, right? Then the, then the, then the oral Torah, the, the rabbinic element, this is going to be the bina. And again, like the woman's body that actually produces and flesh and gestates the child. So here's the thing. Do you want an exodus, Yetzirah Mitzrayim, which is, in a certain sense, theoretical, it's transient, or do you want one that's fleshed out, one that's concrete, one that has rich... If we, our exodus is going to be a deep, rich, personalized exodus, then that has to be something of our making, but we make something of what we were given. Right? So the matzah represents what Hashem gives us. And so we have to be humble. We have to be passive. In fact, there's an interesting halacha. If you swallow the matzah and you don't taste it, have you filled the mitzvah? No. Only COVID. Like. Mm-hmm. What? Okay. Yeah, the rule is, bala matzah If you swallow the matzah, you fulfilled your obligation. Because, because and this is in Hebrew, the word for taste is tam, which is also the word for reason. It's not about, does it resonate with you? Does it make sense? It's true. It's true. It's true. Absorb it. Accept it. It's true. Let it happen to you. But wine is the opposite. Wine has a taste. Wine has a flavor. Wine is supposed to resonate. Wine And wine reveals. Wine manifests. We have to then ruminate. What have we experienced? What does this mean to us? How is this... Who am I now because of this? I have to make the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Exodus, into my Exodus. And that's the four cups of wine. So even though, is it true in general, the entire idea of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Exodus, is that Hashem takes us out and we follow? Yes, that is what's going on. But even that, I'm not a two-year-old. It's not instinctual. I'm an adult. I'm a human being. And I have to take that experience of following Hashem where He leads me into this grand story of being a Jew and that freedom, and I have to make that something which is my own. I don't create it, but I take ownership of it. And that's the idea of the wine. And what's interesting is, does matzah represent our slavery or our freedom, our smallness or our exodus? Which one? It has elements of both. What about the wine? The wine is all about our freedom. The wine is all about... This is actually why, from a halachic point of view, it is preferable to drink alcoholic wine. I will say preferable and not mandatory. Why? One of the signs of freedom is personal responsibility. And we all know that people who are not responsible should not be drinking alcohol. Now, does that mean that if you have a problem with alcohol, you should drink alcoholic wine? Also, it's important to be awake and participate at the Seder. So if alcohol affects you and makes you woozy or sleepy, then that's also a reason not to do it. Um, I know many, many very, very righteous people who do not drink alcohol at the Seder for that reason. Um, but, you know, if it's something that doesn't negatively impact you, it is halakhically preferable, even if it's a little not to your liking, um, to, to put that extra effort. Because, it's not, you know, I, I, I have that notion of responsibility. I do take ownership. So that's the idea that, that ultimately the, the, the rabbinic, the oral, more feminine component of the Torah says it's not enough for Hashem to take us out of Egypt. We have to go that fourth and final step 
and make it our own thing. Something that, that we have time, we have, we have taste, we appreciate, it resonates with us, it makes sense to us. Right? And in that sense, and I mean this purely metaphorically, we all drink a different wine, although often at the Seder, many people are drinking different wines. Mm-hmm. Where we're all eating the same matzah. Right? It's all Hashem revealing the same truth, but then we all have to take it in, 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 in a way that works for us. Okay. Does that make sense? Questions? Yes? Can you some wine, some juice? So... From a halachic point of view, the ideal thing would be to add a little bit of wine in each cup so that every wine has a tiny bit of alcohol. Um, but you have to know what works for you. Because if, if you know, um, like I said, I know people who just like, it's just too much and whatever. And like, also, you know, I think it's also important to realize that life changes. You know, it's one thing when you're a seminary student and you don't really have like a stressful before Pesach, but many people, once they hit the stage of being parents, come to the Seder completely wiped out. And then it could be that even a tiny bit of alcohol is not going to be conducive for you. And you just have to like, it, it, there is, there, there, I will be honest, there is a view that says that setting aside the question of alcohol, grape juice is not something one should drink for the Seder because there is a view that grape juice is not really kosher for for cups of wine because the the argument is that the reason why grape juice is acceptable is because it could become alcoholic. So while freshly squeezed grape juice would be perfectly fine according to everybody, um, commercial grape juice, there is a view that commercial grape juice is not valid for Kiddush and not valid for um, the four cups of wine. One second. So... Practically speaking, many people are stringent in that regard for lack of reasons, but like that's not a stringent. I just want that like like there are people like like that will not make kiddush on grape juice. Um, nothing. Uh, they won't use grape juice for any kind of cup of blessing because there's that consideration that if it was freshly squeezed, that that the gemara says is fine, but this will never turn into wine. So there is that there is that stringent opinion. I'm not saying anyone has to follow it, um, but but the most important thing is you know. The, the standard view is that commercial grape juice is perfectly fine, and if that's what works for you, then by all means you can do that. It's better to use red wine for the Seder. Um, the red wine has symbolic significance, um, so much so that if you don't have red wine, um, many people have the view that you should add a little bit of red wine or red grape juice into the white to color it. There's some, there are people who say you shouldn't do that because it's coloring our job, it's very empty, whatever. Um, but if you don't have, it's perfectly valid to use white wine, but, but one should... One should prefer. Like what if you like mix like white wine and grape juice? That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Just remember, you have to drink it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, you have know, to drink the full cup, or do you have to? Like, you the ideal know? method is the ideal way to drink the four cups is to drink the entire cup, and to drink the entire cup in one go, <laughs> like this. Except leaning, if you do the leaning thing. Hmm. Well, so the rule, the rule is like this. Ashkenazim follow the halachic ruling that men have to lean and women do not have to lean. That's the kind of... Um, and therefore, it basically kind of goes down to... I think we touched on this idea before, is that um, the more, I would say, 
Haredi types of things, you will not see the women leaning. The more modern Orthodox, you'll probably see the women leaning. There's no, so, um, the, 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 this, the old Ashkenaz custom is the women don't lean, but there's not a strict rule against leaning. Um, in Sephardim, it's a little bit more complicated. So, yes, in that case, you do this. Doing drinking cups while leaning is an art form you have to master. Otherwise, you, especially you try to drink the whole cup in one go, because always just like, you always see somebody the first time you have a Seder and no one warns them, right? Is that they're, they're like, okay, I'm going to like do this. And, and then they like, try to like, drink the cup. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. No. Okay. No one Okay. Um, but yes, there's, there's all sorts of interesting things to consider. Um, but those are questions on the practicalities. Like, actually, there are any questions about like, the idea? I guess the idea was so well understood that no one needs to Thank you. Thank you. Still okay. If I don't see you before Pesach, I want to Pesach.